Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for anyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. So we've been, I feel like we have been really getting into talking about ladies, you know? Yeah, sure. Just enjoying the 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 celebrating, I would say, celebrating mm-hmm. women, mm-hmm. successful women. Uh, you and you know your, why? Why? Because a lot of other shows don't cover them. Uh, yeah, that's and true. And we get a lot of people telling us that they've learned a lot about women through our podcast. So, And especially since we have, and we've mentioned this a couple of times before, but a surprising number of dudes uh, who listened to our show, <laughs> which was not... Uh, so I'm going to part the Komodo here a little bit. The whole reason why we started our, our whole intro of like, it was supposed to be ladies who love cool trivia mm-hmm. um, as our like little catchphrase. But then we met a ton of guys and, you know, male presenting individuals, male identifying individuals who were like, I also love your podcast. So then that's when we add ladies and gents as like an aside, like, I guess we'll also include the gents. So that's where that all came came from. And now it's for, and honestly, it is, yeah, and it, it has, has always been. been. It hasn't always been. It has now and always has been. Yes, for, <laughs> for anyone. anyone who, uh, regardless just, of how you, you, know. I, you, I, you are and who you identify and all of that stuff. But that's just a little behind the scenes of why, because it was originally like, oh, it's just a girls only podcast. And then so many guys <laughs> no were like, boys allowed. <laughs> no boys allowed. Boo. And then so many guys were like, I know it's for ladies only, but I really like your podcast. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> but anyway. I interrupted we, you. No, no, you're totally fine. We're, we celebrate, <laughs> we celebrate women here. And uh, I'm going to continue this another, you know, for this month. You did Barbara Streisand last episode. I'm going to do maybe a little bit of a left turn here. Um, But today I'm going to talk to you about photographer Diane Arbus. Yeah, look, by the end of this episode, we'll figure out how they're linked. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe there'll be a a reason. We'll find it. Alice Cooper. Uh, Shows up. The answer, yeah, Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper duetted with Barbara Streisand on something, and Diane Arbus took a photo of Alice Cooper, and he is everywhere. Um, so anyway, so I don't know if you know anything about Diane Arbus. Name only. That's okay, it. Yeah. So uh, I like even as an art historian, I don't know a lot about photographers. Even though I did my master's thesis on uh, Edward S. Curtis and his photographs of the Kwakiutl Native Americans of the Northwest Coast, which, you know, one day I'm going to torture you all by giving my symposium talk. (laughs) (laughs) We'll save that for a week where you can't write your podcast episode. (laughs) I'll just pull up my symposium and be like, all right, everybody, we're talking about cannibal masks. Um, So anyway, but today we're going to talk about Diane Arbus. And uh, even as an art historian, I'm not that familiar with photographers and art photographers specifically. Um, But we will get into Diane Arbus and her and her work. So. She was born Diane Nemirov to a Jewish couple. They were immigrants from Soviet Russia. Um, they lived in New York City, and they owned uh, a Fifth Avenue department store called Ruseks, and it was co-founded by her grandfather, whose name was Frank Rusek. Um, they were pretty wealthy, and because of her family's wealth, she was insulated from the effects of the Great Depression while growing up in the 1930s. So she really didn't experience that like hardship mm-hmm. in her youth. Um, Her father became a painter after retiring from the department store, and her younger sister became a sculptor and a designer. And her older brother, 
uh, was the poet Howard Nemerov, and he taught English at Washington University in St. Louis and was appointed United States Poet Laureate. Oh, impressive. Um, also, just aside, Howard's son is the Americanist art historian Alexander Nemerov. So a very learned and successful family. Um, her parents were not really that involved <laughs> in raising their children. They were overseen by maids and governesses. Her mother had a very busy social life. Um, she actually underwent a period of clinical depression for probably about a year. Um, and then she recovered, but her father was also busy with work. And so Diane kind of separated herself from her family in her lavish childhood as she aged. Um, she attended a prep school. Uh, and in 1941, at the age of 18, she married her childhood sweetheart, Alan Arbus, whom she had dated since age 14. Which, how old were they when they when she got married? Eighteen. Okay. So, uh, I mean, you know, not done more often than one yeah. would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, their daughter Dune, which is D O O N, which was her given name, uh, she would become a writer. She was born in forty five, and their daughter Amy, who would become a photographer, was born in fifty four. Uh, Do you think about- Amy was like, how did how did I get? How did I, I get, get Amy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's no really, it's Dune. Like, yeah, it's like, not a comic Like the name. end of Brigadoon. Yes, like the end of Brigadoon, exactly. I don't know, but hmm. um, more about Dune later. She's okay. going to pop okay, up. Okay. Um, so Arbus and her husband worked together in commercial photography from 46 to 56, but Alan remained very supportive of her work even after she left the business and began an independent relationship to photography, which we'll get to in a second. So uh, Diane received her first camera, which was a Graflex from Alan shortly after they married. So just after that, she enrolled in classes with photographer Berenice Abbott and their interests in photography led them as a couple in 1941 to visit the gallery of Alfred Stieglitz, the famous modern photographer Mm -hmm. who really brought photography into like the art world in a a significant Mm way. Um, In the early 40s, her father employed them to take photographs for the department store's advertisements. And Alan was a photographer for the U.S. Army Signals Corps in World War II. So crazy about photography, these two. Oh, they love it. Oh, they love it. The smell Um, of the chemical. Yeah, the smell of the darkroom chemicals and the negatives. Red light just Just shining in your eyes. Uh, I took photography in college with um, a Greek... Cypriot um, photographer professor and I loved him deeply oh his name was Costa and uh, he was wonderful but I remember literally nothing about what he taught me Um, I had such a crush on him and he looked like a troll and I just love I just loved him deeply Uh, So in 1946 after the war the Arbuses began a commercial photography business called Diane and Alan Arbus Uh, She was the art director, he was the photographer, and she would come up with the concepts for their shoots and then take care of the models. Um, She eventually grew dissatisfied with this role, uh, which uh, was a role that her husband even thought was demeaning. Okay. Um, They contributed to Glamour Magazine, Seventeen, Vogue, and other magazines, even though they both hated the fashion world, apparently. (laughs) Um, So despite over 200 pages of their fashion editorial in Glamour and over 80 pages in Vogue, the Arbus's fashion photography has been described as of, quote, middling quality. (laughs) Um, Edward Steichen, the other noted photographer who had the 1955 photography exhibition, The Family of Man, did include a photograph by the Arbus's of a father and son reading a newspaper. So that was probably like their first foray into like the gallery world of photography. 
She studied briefly with Alexei Brodovich in 1954. And however, it was her studies with Lizette Model, which began in 1956, that encouraged Arbus to focus exclusively on her own work. Um, and that year, Arbus quit the commercial photography business and began numbering her negatives. So she began keeping track, essentially, of her, her personal like catalog of what she was okay. photographing. Um, her last known negative was labeled number 7459, just as an FYI. It's like a <laughs> trivia thing. I highly doubt that would be a trivia question. Um, you Thorsten, know. if you're, yeah, Thorsten, if you're hearing this, and I know you are, <laughs> that would be a very cheap uh, question to ask. Um, so, based on Model's advice, she avoided loading film in the camera as an exercise in truly seeing. Um, so, she also credits Model with making it clear to her that the more specific you are, the more general it'll be. Hmm. Which is really like a mind bendy. Like philosophical yeah. kind of question that we don't really have time to get into <laughs> right now, but apparently that really struck with her. So she would act like she didn't, or so, sorry, so she would take the camera out without any film in it and pretend to take pictures. Yes, so as a way of like, I guess learning. Well, you know, yeah, learning, and also you know you think about this like film was expensive and especially if you were working with like a high-end camera i i don't know enough about cameras or or film to know if mm -hmm. the graflex is like especially expensive or has a very unique kind of film that goes with it or that kind of thing um but i think it's more like you you're not concerned about wasting film or making sure that you have like a perfect picture mm -hmm. you can kind of like we would with digital cameras right now just take as many pictures as you want and just kind of like because they're, the because they're imaginary. Because they're imaginary pictures. You can take as many imaginary. imaginary pictures as you want yeah. with your Graflex camera with no film in it. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's more like like you're not your your mind is wholly invested in what you're seeing in front of you as opposed to like, ooh, is this the should I take a picture now? Is this the right like that kind of thing? I don't but know. Then you, it's, but then you miss but then you missed it. Sure. I mean, I guess. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> uh, this is what I'll be stuck on this the whole rest of the episode. Yeah, Sorry. I know. <laughs> She's not listening anymore. <laughs> Julia's checked out. <laughs> so by 1956, she worked with a 35 millimeter Nikon. And she really wandered the streets of New York City. And she met her subjects largely, through, though not always by chance. She just kind of like came across people and was like, hey, can I take your photo? Um, the idea of personal identity as socially constructed is one that Arbus came back to, whether it be performers, women and men wearing makeup, or a literal mask obstructing one's face. So she really loved this idea of like performative social like interaction, where it's okay. like this is the costume that I wear every day to, you know, this is who I am, you know, on the outside and what I am on the inside is different. Um, critics have speculated that the choices in her subjects reflected her own identity issues. Um, for she said that the only thing she suffered from as a child was never having felt adversity, which is wild. Um, huh, this evolved into a, <laughs> I know that's, that's hard like, to, boo, you know, symbolize <laughs> <with>. <laughs> exactly. Um, so this evolved into a longing for things that money couldn't buy, such as experiences in the underground social world. So there's a little bit of an aspect of this of like, not poor little rich girl, but definitely like someone from a very privileged background kind of exploring the, like the social underbelly mm. of specifically New York city, like that kind of thing. Um, she's often praised for her sympathy for these subjects, um, a quality, which is not immediately understood through the images themselves, but through her writing and the testimonies of, of the people she portrayed. Um, a few years later in 58, she began m making lists of who and what she was interested in photographing. 
And she began photographing on assignment for magazines such as Esquire, Harper's Bazaar, and the Sunday Times Magazine in 1959. Um, Arbus and her husband actually separated in 1959, although they maintained a very close friendship. Um, they also continued to share a dark room where Alan's studio assistants processed her negatives and she printed her work. Um, they divorced officially in 1969 when he moved to California to pursue acting. In fact, he is best known for his role as Dr. Sidney Friedman on the television show MASH. Oh. And I, I had to look him up and I was like, he looks familiar. He was like the psychiatrist. I did not watch nearly enough MASH to like no. recognize the secondary characters on the show. Um, but people's mash heads, as they're known, <laughs> seem to be big fans. That's what they call them. <laughs> That's what they call them. Um, so before his move to California, Alan set up her dark room, and they thereafter maintained a long correspondence. I believe they they wrote to each other very affectionately until the day she died. Um, in late 1959, uh, Diane began in a relationship with the art director and painter Marvin Israel that would last until her death. Um, all the while, he remained married to Margaret Ponce Israel, who is an accomplished mixed media artist, which is like such an artist thing to do. Like, mm. oh, this is my husband and my husband's lover, you know, like that kind of thing. Uh, Marvin Israel both spurred Arbus creatively and championed her work and encouraged her to create her first portfolio. Um, and among other photographers and artists she befriended, Arbus was close to photographer Richard Avedon. Um, he was approximately the same age as she was. His family had also run a Fifth Avenue department store, and many of his photographs were also characterized by these kind of detailed frontal poses that she is okay. also well-known. That name sounds familiar, too. Yeah, Richard Avedon. Um, very he did a beautiful photograph of Marilyn Monroe that is so stunningly beautiful. Um, he did a lot of fashion spreads for Vogue. They were kind of like a little like alternative, but also very, very like editorial, like really mm -hmm. beautiful. Not like it was weird in like the right kind of way for this time period. Um, and he also photographed the Kennedys as well oh, okay. as in a, in a couple portrait, as well as like, I mean, a ton of celebrities right. and models and things. I mean, you would recognize a lot of these photographs. Um, so around 1962, she switched from a 35 millimeter Nikon, which produced this kind of grainy rectangular image characteristic of her post-studio work, to a twin lens reflex Roloflex camera, which produced these kind of more detailed square images, hmm. which one would recognize as being kind of like Instagram-esque okay. to a certain extent. And she explained this transition by saying, quote, in the beginning of photographing, I used to make very grainy things. I'd be fascinated by what the grain did because it would make a kind of tapestry of all these little dots. But when I'd been working for a while with all these dots, I suddenly wanted terribly to get through there. I wanted to see the real difference between things. I began to get terribly hyped on clarity. Hmm. So her style is said to be direct and unadorned a frontal portrait centered in a square format. Her pioneering use of flash and daylight isolated the subjects from the background, which contributed to the photo's surreal quality. So there's this like very like highlight and shadow kind of detailed image of these people while the background looks almost like a, like floating away from the image, which creates kind of an interesting surrealist quality um, to her images. Did she shoot in color too or just black and white? Just black and white, yep. Um, her methods included establishing a strong personal relationship with her subjects and re-photographing some of them over many years. Okay. So she had good relationships with a lot of, out of the people that she, um, she took pictures of. So in spite of being widely published and achieving some artistic recognition, Arbus struggled to support herself through her work. Uh, during her lifetime, there was no market for collecting photographs as works of art, and her prints usually sold for $100 or less. 
And it's evident from her correspondence that lack of money was a persistent concern. Mm. So it's interesting because this is like, it feels very late in this kind of period of modern art photography, right? So you have Steichen and you have Stieglitz and, you know, there's the, the armory show and like photography and, um, Stieglitz taking his pictures of Georgia O'Keeffe with her hands and her neck and like all of these things. Um, and you'd think that that would be like ushering in this, this world of photography as art, but it took a really, really, really long time. In fact, there are still, um, art critics who do not consider photography to be art at all. Huh. Um, which seems very backwards, but it took a really long time. And even like during Arbus's time, photography was not considered art. Like why, you know, painting is requires a skill. Photographing right. just means okay. that you just like press a, press a button. Like this is, that's not any, that's nothing, you know? So there was this tension between art and photography for the majority of the 20th century. And still like, there are still some like kind of backwards thinking art critics who are still like photography is not art, which is silliness. But um, regardless, in 63, she was awarded a Guggenheim fellowship for a project on American rights, manners and customs. And it was renewed again the, uh, in 1966. So throughout the 60s, she supported herself largely by taking magazine assignments and commissions. Um, in 68, she shot documentary photographs of poor sharecroppers in rural South Carolina for Esquire magazine. Um, in 1969, a rich and prominent actor and thereafter owner, Conrad Matai, and his wife, Gay, commissioned Arbus to photograph a family Christmas gathering. And throughout her career, she photographed Mae West, Ozzie Nelson, and Harriet Nelson, Bennett Cerf, atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare, Norman Mailer, Jane Mansfield, Eugene McCarthy, billionaire H.L. Hunt, Gloria Vanderbilt's baby, a little guy you might recognize <laughs> as Anderson Cooper. Um, if you look up the photo, it's called A Very Young Baby, New York City, 1968. And I don't know if this was just like because I knew it was Anderson Cooper, but I was like, that's Anderson Cooper. Baby I was is, like, that's that baby, baby is Anderson is, Cooper. That's, a, that's an extraordinarily handsome baby. That's Anderson Cooper. Um, so she also photographed Credit Scott King and Marguerite Oswald, which was Lee Harvey Oswald's mother. Oh. Yeah. Um, and in general, her magazine assignments kind of decreased as her fame as an artist increased, as you might imagine. Um, she also taught photography at the Parsons School of Design in the Cooper Union in New York City and Rhode Island School of Design in Providence, Rhode Island, also known as RISD, one of the best design schools you can go to. Um, late in her career, the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, indicated to her that they would buy three of her photographs for $75 each, but <laughs> citing a lack of funds, purchased only two. Because, oh you know. <laughs> we don't got a lot of money, the Met. So she wrote to Alan Arbus in sub, you know, after this happened, she wrote, so I guess being poor is no disgrace. Um, so beginning in 1969, and I think this is what she's most famous for just kind of in, you know, in, you know, in public in the zeitgeist, uh, is that she undertook a series of photographs of people at New Jersey residences for the developmentally and intellectually disabled. And these were posthumously named untitled. Um, she returned to several facilities repeatedly for Halloween parties, picnics, and dances. And in a letter to Ellen Arbus dated November 28th, 1969, she described these photographs as, quote, lyric and tender and pretty. Um, what's interesting is she, she's been both, like, celebrated and also criticized for maybe exploiting people who mm. were developmentally or intellectually disabled, kind of like, almost like, um, like, early 20th century, like freak show photographs okay. kind of thing. Huh. But, you know, 
for all intents and purposes, it certainly seems like she had a real affection for these people, treated them as human beings, wanted to photograph them because she was interested in this kind of like, um, not necessarily like underbelly of society, but like mm-hmm. people who were normally excluded or untold ignored. stories, untold stories. Exactly. Um, and her previous photography reflects that this wasn't just like, Oh, now I'm going to like shoot the freaks, you know, like that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, but you know, it was, you know, the late sixties, it, it, it can't help but be like some of them. You're kind of like, oh, you probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> like that kind of thing. So it's, it's, um, it's still a matter of debate with regards to her career. Um, art Forum, which is a, a contemporary art ma- magazine that is still around. Mm-hmm. We get it at the museum. It's like a big deal. They published six photographs, including a cover image from Arbus's portfolio, which was called A Box of Ten Photographs in May of 1971. Um, after his encounter with Arbus in the portfolio, Philip Leiter, then the editor-in-chief of Art Forum and a photography skeptic, admitted... A photography skeptic? I don't believe I know. in photography. <laughs> I don't think these are real images. Boo! <laughs> Ghosts made them. Um, He did admit, quote, with Diane Arvis, one could find oneself interested in photography or not, but one could no longer deny its status as art. So that was a big deal. Like she changed a skeptic's mind. Um, She was the first photographer to be featured in art forum. And Leiter's admission of Arbus into this critical bastion of late modernism was instrumental in shifting the perception of photography and ushering its acceptance into the realm of serious art. So, you know, one could make the argument because of art form and Philip Leiter and all of this stuff that she was one of the first photographers who really started to break, you know, photography into the serious art realm. Um, so trigger warning for everybody. Uh, Arbus experienced depressive episodes during her life, similar to those experienced by her mother. Um, the episodes may have been made worse by symptoms of hepatitis. Um, in 1968, she wrote a letter to a personal friend, Carlotta Marshall, that says, quote, I go up and down a lot. Maybe I've always been like that. Partly what happens, though, is I get filled with energy and joy and I begin lots of things or think about what I want to do and get all breathless with excitement. And then quite suddenly... It- either through tiredness or disappointment or something more mysterious, the energy vanishes, leaving me harassed, swamped, distraught, frightened by the very things I thought I was so eager for. I'm sure this is quite classic. Um, Her ex-husband once noted that she had violent changes of mood. Um, So on July 26, 1971, while living at West Beth Artists Community in New York City, she died by suicide by ingesting barbiturates and cutting her wrists with a razor. She wrote the words Last Supper in her diary and placed her appointment book on the stairs leading up to the bathroom. Marvin Israel found her body in the bathtub two days later. I know. She was only 48 years old. Uh, Photographer Joel Meyerowitz told journalist Arthur Lubau, quote, if she was doing the kind of work she was doing and photography wasn't enough to keep her alive, what hope did we have? Which is like, yikes. In 1972, Arbus was the first photographer to be included in the Venice Biennale. Her photographs were described as the overwhelming sensation of the American pavilion and an extraordinary achievement. So Peggy, Peggy G loved her. Oh, Peggy G loved her. So she is, she was all set. Um, Arbus's work had such an influence on other photographers that it's already hard to remember how original it was, wrote the art critic Robert Hughes in a November 1972 issue of Time magazine. She has been called a seminal figure in modern day photography and an influence on three generations of photographers and is widely considered to be among the most influential artists of the last century. 
Um, when the film The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick, was released at cinemas worldwide in 1980 and became hugely successful, millions of moviegoers uh, experienced Diane Arbus's legacy without even realizing it. The movie's reoccurring characters of identical twin girls who are wearing identical dresses appear on screen as a result of a suggestion Kubrick received from crew member Leon Vitale. He is described by film historian Nick Chen as, quote, Kubrick's right-hand man from the mid-1970s onwards. Chen goes on to reveal, not only did Vitali videotape and interview 5,000 kids to find the right child actor to portray Jack Nicholson's son, Danny, he was also responsible for discovering the creepy twin sisters on the final day of auditions. <laughs> the pair, in fact, weren't twins in Kubrick's script, and it was Vitali who immediately suggested Diane Arbus's infamous photo of two identical twin sisters as a point of reference. Uh-huh. And if you've seen that Arbus photo, it is, it is definitely like, you can tell it was 100% uh, the influence of the shining twins. Like it's two little girls in identical dresses, perfectly like dark haired curly twins. And they have like a, an inscrutable expression on both their faces, just like being shot against just like a white wall. Um, she really liked, it seemed like she liked to photograph kids, but she liked to photograph weird kids. There's one, it's <laughs> one of my favorites. It's like, you know, boy with a, uh, toy rocket or something mm-hmm. and he's it's this like wiry little kid in like the park and he's holding a little toy rocket and he's just being like a goofball like he's making a face and like his contorting his little hands and he's just like being weird and it's just i think you can tell like how she was kind of interested in like the weirdness of people and the strangeness of just like everyday life and with kids it wasn't just like these beautiful portraits of beautiful children it was like just little kids being little freak shows like they are. It was just kind of fun. <clears throat> so that's where that comes from. Is uh, It's a direct reference to a Diana, Diane Arbus photograph. So since she died without a will, the responsibility for overseeing her work fell to her daughter, Dune. Um, Dune forbade examinations of Arbus's correspondence and often denied permission for exhibition or reproduction of her photographs without prior vetting to the ire of many critics and scholars. Mm-hmm. The editors of an academic journal published a two-page complaint in 1993 about the estate's control over Arbus's images and its attempt to censor characterizations of subjects and the photographer's motives in articles about Arbus. A 2005 article called the estate's allowing the British press to reproduce only 15 photographs as an attempt to, quote, control criticism and debate. Um, the estate was also criticized in 2008 for minimizing Arbus's early commercial work, although those photographs were taken by Alan Arbus and credited to the Diane and Alan Arbus studio. Mm-hmm. In 2011, a review in The Guardian of an emergency in slow motion, The Inner Life of Diane Arbus by William Todd Schultz references, quote, the famously controlling Arbus estate who, as Schultz put it recently, seemed to have this idea, which I disagree with, that any attempt to interpret the art diminishes the art. Like there has been an ongoing battle between art critics and exhibitions and, you know, people who want to like really explore her work um, and Dune and, you know, the Arbus estate to keep it from like super protective, super protective, which on one hand, you know, uh, considering how commercialized a lot of artists, like dead artists work have become, Mm. um, I kind of don't blame her for it. Like she wants to be able to control what, where her mother's artwork goes and what it's used for. And I don't blame her for that, you know? Right. Um, you know, you don't want to see it as like a photo in a, I don't know, like a magazine ad or, you know, being mocked up as a meme or, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't allow her artwork to kind of like grow and move and, and like be explored in new and interesting ways. If, they have such a tight chokehold on it. So, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds about it as someone who works in a museum and, 
you know, works with artists and that kind of thing. So, so there's that. Um, and then finally in 2006, the fictional film fur an imaginary portrait of Diane Arbus was released starring Nicole Kidman as Arbus. Um, apparently it used Patricia Bosworth's unauthorized biography, Diane Arbus, a biography as a source of inspiration. Brilliant um, title. Crit- yeah. Critics generally took issues with the film's fairy tale portrayal of Arbus. It's such, I mean, I didn't watch it, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but it's so weird. Like in the movie, she has a very contentious relationship with her husband. Who's played by the guy who plays Phil in modern family. <laughs> um, <laughs> which uh, is weird to see. I, yeah, Ty Burrell. Yeah. Ty Burrell. Um, and she's living in this apartment building and then, you know, she starts hearing like mysterious, no, there's like a big clump of fur that she finds in like one of the drains and she's like, her husband does all the f- photography and he's like, you know, photos aren't for ladies. And she's like, meh, I want to photograph people. And he's like, okay, here's a camera. And then she discovers like a circus set up in, their, in the basement and then she gets told that there's a guy on like the seventh floor or whatever who that's where the fur is coming from. And she like knocks on the door is like your dog. You got to stop like washing your dog in the tub or something like that. And it turns out it's a man who has um, like hirsutism where he's uh-huh. like, like the, you know, like the freak show, like dog boy yeah. thing where they're, they're born with like hair all over their bodies. And it's played by Robert Downey Jr. And she like falls in love with him. But she, but it's like fetishized where she's like, at one point they're at a cafe and he has his hand on the table and she's looking at his hand and he goes, Oh, I'm sorry. And like pulls his hand away and she like grabs his hand and like strokes his fur. And she's like, no, I like it. It's like, so it's like, this is gross. Why? Yeah. Like why, <laughs> like, why are you call doing this? this? Why did you call this her story? Yeah. It has almost nothing to do with him. So I don't know. It's very weird. And then at the end, like he, he, she like sexily shaves his whole body. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> thanks. Many thanks to Wikipedia for like providing the, oh <laughs> the synopsis that, so I didn't have to watch it. But, um, so yeah, so it was about fur in some very weird. Can I jump off of, um, your point about, uh, Dune protecting her mother's please. work? Yeah, please. So, do. um, when I, when I teach my archives course, um, we sp- you know, spend a week talking about privacy issues in the archives. And, you know, at what point do materials cease to be private and be accessible by people? So there are a couple of really interesting um, case studies, including one with J.D. Salinger. Mm. So so after... you know, everybody knows this guy, right? <laughs> hey, <laughs> um, yeah, hey. So known for Catcher in the Rye, because it's really good to catch all that rye. Um, so he led a really private life um, and mm-hmm. he published his final original work in like 1965, gave his like last public interview in 1980. Um, and he refused to cooperate with a guy who really wanted to write a biography about him. So yeah. what he did was he... Um, Salinger, who had deposited some of his personal papers into certain archives like Harvard and Princeton, he retroactively registered the copyright on all of his letters and all of his stuff that had been deposited into archives so that nobody could come and actually use these and that none of his um, and that any um, any use of those would get blocked by the courts. It was like, oh, wow, really, really crazy. And so then any of his heirs and any of his family wouldn't grant that. Um, James Joyce, your favorite novelist. Um, mm-hmm. uh, 
So <laughs> um, when he passed away in 1941, originally copyright on his works would have um, extended until the year 1991. Like that would have been like the end of that copyright. Yeah. So in 1988, which was like three years before the copyright would have you know, evaporated on that. Mm-hmm. Um, his grandson announced that he had destroyed about a thousand letters um, within Joyce's possession, as well as um, ones relating to his daughter, who people refer to as troubled, um, as well as letters to her from um, the author Samuel Beckett. And so then a lot of these other places, like libraries that held these letters, were forbidden from showing them to other people. Wow. And so it was like the family is like starting to take possession of works like mm-hmm. because they don't want other people to either learn information from these materials or or be able to, you know, capitalize on that by, you know, writing yeah, exactly. a biography or like s- reselling mm-hmm. prints or stuff like that. Um, and we talked about like Jane Austen um, all the way you know, back in the single digis or whatever. But um, most of her letters were burned by her sister when she yeah. died. Uh, Percy Shelley's work was censored and destroyed by his wife. Um, mm-hmm. Lewis Carroll's mm-hmm. diaries were destroyed, probably by family members. Um, Ted Hughes destroyed one of Sylvia, Sylvia Plath's journals. So yeah, it's yeah. like all of this, like, you know, these people have passed away for all intents and purposes. And so at what point are you like protecting something yeah, their legacy versus or their... like cease you know versus <laughs> like stopping their work from becoming inspirational to people or causing people to you know create derivative works or things like that and so it's really yeah. you know kinds of a little bit of copyright a little bit of privacy but like yeah i can i can see why the art world would be like really frustrated with yeah you know why can't we access these these pieces of art that she created that she was you know seemed to have meant for them to be consumed yeah exactly sorry yeah it's my little no no, you're totally fine it's a it's a good um it is a a nice thought experiment and it is something that you know there is there is good arguments for on both sides Mm -hmm. and it seems to be something that like you have to take on a case-by-case basis to a certain extent Mm -hmm. because on one hand like these are public figures who have contributed to society and, and culture and and the art world and that kind of thing and so you so know, they're they, not private they sh- anymore. Like, so they're not private once anymore. Once you enter yeah, the, pi- exactly. the public sphere, you're not. Yeah, exactly. And there are aspects of these people's lives and their work that that are important and should be continue. And by like keeping like a, such a tight hold on it, prevents it from continuing to a certain extent. Continue on um, it throughout history. But at the same time, like we, there are so many commercialized aspects, like Basquiat. Like, mm-hmm. come on, like his his get a father. Gap shirt. Really, yeah, you can get a Gapture with a Basquiat on it, which on one hand is kind of cool, like just as someone who like likes Basquiat, but on the other hand, it's like, ick, like, <laughs> like ick. <laughs> this feels weird and commercial. And like Marilyn Monroe, mm-hmm. it, her she's everywhere because the guy who owned her estate after she died, like completely exploited her and that that whole thing. Like she's basically like Marilyn Monroe Inc. at this mm-hmm. point. So. It is it is a, an interesting thing to kind of think about and talk about, um, especially in both of our fields with stuff like that. So, so yeah. So that was Diane Arbus. Thank you for thank you for contributing that. That's uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, just something to think about. Did she take a lot of naked pictures? No, who she am I thinking of, of? I'm thinking. I don't, of, I don't know who I'm thinking of. <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of. I mean, if you Google naked pictures photography. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you think do you think something will come up if I do? Yeah, that? go ahead, dude. Just click away. <laughs> You'll find who you're thinking of. I'm sure you will. So anyway, 
Um, my quiz today, going off of the you know complete non sequitur of Fur, the Diane Arbus unauthorized movie with <laughs> Nicole Kidman. Um, today, I'm doing a quiz on furry things. Question number one. You've heard tell of all these animals, especially when fur was in fashion, but mink, marten, and sable are all members of the same family of what kind of furry mammal? Question number two. In the Seinfeld episode, The Chicken Roaster, Elaine gets audited after she uses the J. Peterman business account to buy George a Russian sable hat, which he had promptly lost at a girl's house and yada, yada, yada. He gets a replacement from Kramer's friend, Bob Sacamano. The Peterman accountant is not fooled, however, and correctly identifies the material of the imposter hat as what kind of lower quality fur? Question number three, a fashion question. What is the name of the kind of short fur jacket that is cropped at the waist and gives a fuller look to the wearer? It's not a super complimentary word, and it's one you might use to describe an especially adorable baby. Question number four. Natukas are traditional winter boots made and worn by the indigenous Sami people of Scandinavia. Because they are made from soft hide, they don't freeze as solidly as a thicker leather boot would in sub-zero temperatures. These boots are made from the hide and fur of what native animal to the region? Question number five. Shearling is a skin from a recently shorn sheep or lamb that has been tanned and dressed with the wool left on. It has a suede surface on one side and a clipped fur surface on the other. It's most often seen in Ugg boots nowadays, but it's the element that makes this iconic jacket so recognizable. What is it? Question number six. This crepuscular rodent has the densest fur of all land rodents and are popular in the fur trade for having the softest fur ever. What is this soft, cute little guy? Question number seven. This furry mammal is more closely related to sheep and goats and is native to the Arctic, which is why it has such a dense furry coat. What is the name of this bovidae, which derives its name from its stinky odor during mating season? Question number eight, true or false, Corella de Ville had it right. Dalmatian fur is prized in some parts of Eastern Europe. Question number nine, this real life historical figure and subsequent man of legend is a Tennessee folk hero and also represented the state in the U.S. House of Representatives. In 1827, he was elected to the U.S. Congress, where he vehemently opposed many of the policies of President Andrew Jackson, boo, especially the Indian Removal Act. We're still not sure if he actually wore that raccoon skin hat. Who is this legendary American? And finally, question number 10. The very furry film The Revenant is based on a true story about Hugh Glass, an American frontiersman and fur trapper who was left for dead during a hunting expedition and had to use his wits to find his way to civilization and defeat bears along the way who is the actor who won his first Oscar playing glass. We'll give you a minute to think about it and we'll be back with your answers.
All right. Feeling good. Feeling strong. Feeling good. Feeling strong. All right. Here we go. Launching right in. Question number one. You've heard tell of all these animals, especially when fur was in fashion, but mink, marten, and sable are all members of the same family of what kind of furry mammal? Are they weasel? They are weasels. I also would have accepted mustelids and ferrets. Ah, a mustelid. A mustelid. That's the uh, that's the family name. Mm-hmm. I, think. Um, I have nothing else about that. Uh, <laughs> question number two. <laughs> question number two. In the Seinfeld episode, The Chicken Roaster, Elaine gets audited after she uses the J. Peterman business account to buy Georgia Russian sable hat, which he promptly lost at a girl's house and yada, yada, yada. He gets a replacement from Kramer's friend, Bob Sacamano. The Peterman accountant is not fooled, however, and correctly identifies the material of the imposter hat as what kind of lower quality uh, fur? It's rat fur. I will accept that. It is uh it is nutria. Nutria, nutria. yes. But it is a nutria is a, is in a fact, big a rat. Of, yeah, it's a giant <laughs> water rat native to South America. Um, however, it has been introduced to North America, Europe, Asia, and Africa, primarily by fur farmers. It's also known as a koipu. And their fur is considered guilt-free because the animal itself is a pest. <laughs> so, so I guess it's a guilt-free fur, everybody. I don't know why you'd want to have it anyway. Uh, question number three. What is the name of the kind of short fur jacket that is cropped at the waist and gives a fuller look to the wearer? It's not a super, super complimentary word, and it's one you might use to describe an especially adorable baby. Um, I don't know this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out there the term plumper <laughs> that's a good that's an excellent guess it's actually worse they're called chubbies oh yeah no. it's called a chubby jacket yeah i remember when i was working with the sue engine costume collection and jeff mayer shout out to jeff mayer he doesn't listen to this podcast um i remember we were unpacking a bunch of stuff and he was like oh it's a chubby and i was like jeffrey <laughs> He was like, no, it's a kind of jacket. Isn't that disgusting? So we would like, we made a lot of chubby jokes um, along with uh, Bette Midler's Poochie because we, we yeah. purchased a Poochie from Bette Midler. But, Do you want to you know. see Bette Midler's Poochie? Would you like to, would you say, like to see our chubbies? Um, <laughs> chubby jackets were very popular in the 1930s and 40s. You would usually wear them over like a long, slinky, elegant gown. Mm-hmm. So you would have that kind of like cropped top and like a long unbroken line of beautiful like shimmer um and it also had a bit of a resurgence in the 1970s it was very like in the disco era chubbies came back for a short period of time if you're interested (laughs) so check your mom's closets everybody grandma's closets you might find some chubbies all right question number four Natukas are traditional winter boots made and worn by the indigenous Sami people of Scandinavia. Because they are made from soft hide, they don't freeze as solidly as a thicker leather boot would in sub-zero temperatures. These boots are made from the hide and fur of what native animal to the region? I'm going to guess a seal. Incorrect. It is a reindeer. Oh. Reindeer, yeah. Uh, The Sami have historically been known in English as laps or laplanders. Mm -hmm. Um, but these terms, I should mention, are regarded as offensive by the Sami. Okay. Um, traditionally, they have pursued a variety of livelihoods, including coastal fishing, fur trapping, and sheep herding. But their best known means of livelihood is semi-nomadic reindeer herding. Uh, currently, about 10% of the Sami are connected to reindeer herding, which provides them with meat, fur, and transportation. 2,800 Sami people are actively involved in reindeer herding on a full-time basis in Norway. Uh, and for traditional environmental, cultural, and political reasons, reindeer herding is legally reserved for only Sami in some regions of the Nordic countries. So that's mm-hmm. the thing. 
Uh, question number five. Shearling is a skin from a recently shorn sheep or lamb that has been tanned and dressed with the wool left on. It has a suede surface on one side and a clipped fur surface on the other. It's most often seen in Ugg boots nowadays, but it's the element that makes this iconic jacket so recognizable. What is it? A bomber jacket? It is a bomber jacket. Um, so they were invented because in World War One, most airplanes did not have an enclosed cockpit. So pilots had to wear something that would keep them sufficiently <laughs> warm. If you can imagine, uh, the U.S. Army officially established the Aviation Clothing Board in September of 1917 and began distributing heavy-duty leather flight jackets with high wraparound collars, zipper closures with wind flaps, snug cuffs and waists, and some fringed and lined with fur. Hollywood stuntman Leslie Irvin first designed and manufactured the classic sheepskin flying jacket. So he is the hmm. inventor of the bomber jacket. Yeah. Question number six. This crepuscular rodent has the densest fur of all land rodents and are popular in the fur trade for having the softest fur ever. What is this soft, cute little guy? Is it a chinchilla? It is a chinchilla. <laughs> um, in the water, the sea otter has a denser coat. Oh. Uh, the chinchilla is named after the chincha people of the Andes who once wore its dense velvet-like fur. By the end of the 19th century, chinchillas had become quite rare after being hunted for their ultra-soft fur. Most chinchillas currently used by the fur industry for clothing and other accessories are farm-raised, and they're also very popular as pets. They're so tiny. They're so tiny. And there's a very popular chinchilla on, I think on like TikTok or something, (laughs) that its owner just like hands them things and that he grabs them and that he holds them up. So he like always holds like signs or like a little, like he wears like a little top hat and he has a cane and they hand him the cane and he holds it. It's very cute. (laughs) They're very soft. Oh, Lord, they're so soft. Okay, question number seven. This furry mammal is more closely related to sheep and goats and is native to the Arctic, which is why it has such a dense furry coat. What is the name of this bovidae, which derives its name from its stinky odor during mating season? Is it a muskox? It is a muskox. Uh, Both male and female musk oxen have horns, uh, and they are occasionally domesticated for wool, meat, and milk. Um, The wool, which is known as kiviot, is highly prized for its softness, length, and insulation value. So keep that in mind. Mm. Uh, question number eight. True or false, Cruella de Vil had it right. Dalmatian fur is prized in some parts of Eastern Europe. I'm going to say false. It is false, okay. thankfully. Okay. Um, yeah. Dalmatians have always been prized, especially in their native Croatia, but for their living coat and their hunting abilities. Uh, there is no evidence that they were raised for fashion fur. They make terrible pets, by the way, as many people discovered after the Dalmatian boom, after 101 Dalmatians came out. They're loud. They're hard to train. They're high energy. They're often deaf because of genetics. Oh, um, And they shed like crazy. So don't get yourself a Dalmatian for your kids. Or for yourself, let's be honest. Because <laughs> you'll be taking care of it if you got yeah. it for your kids anyway. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, question number nine. This real-life historical figure and subsequent man of legend is a Tennessee folk hero and also represented the state in the U.S. House of Representatives. In 1827, he was elected to the U.S. Congress, where he vehemently opposed many of the policies of President Andrew Jackson, especially the Indian Removal Act. We're still not sure if he actually wore that raccoon skin hat. Who is this legendary American? Here's the problem. There's okay. two guys, and I can't ever remember if one of them is real oh, or yeah, not. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I and I'll just I'll say Davy Crockett. You're right. It's okay, Davy Crockett. Okay, he is real. Davy Crockett is real. So in early 1836 he took part in the Texas Revolution and died at the Battle of the Alamo. Yes. 
Uh, he was either in battle or executed after being captured by the Mexican army. No one knows which. He is commonly known as King of the Wild Frontier, and Walt Disney adapted Crockett's stories into a television miniseries titled Davy Crockett, which aired in 1954 and 1955 on Walt Disney's Disneyland. Um, the series popularized the image of Crockett portrayed by Fess Parker wearing a raccoon skin hat and originating the song The Ballad of Davy Crockett, which I, I have never seen a single episode of mm-hmm. this show that was only on for literally a year, but everyone can sing that stupid song. I'm not going to I'm not going to sing Don't do it. I won't do it. Um, the first three parts of the series were edited into a feature-length movie for theaters as well. So mm-hmm. people were really crazy about Davy Crockett in the 1950s. Look, they needed somebody. Uh, right? Yikes. Cold War, am I right? Uh, <laughs> and finally, question number 10. This very furry film, The Revenant, is based on a true story about Hugh Glass, an American frontiersman and fur trapper who was left for dead during a hunting expedition and had to use his wits to find his way to civilization and defeat bears along the way. Who is the actor who won his first Oscar playing Glass? Oh, you know, my heart will go on. That was yep. uh, that was Leo DiCaprio. Good old Leo DiCaprio. So Hugh Glass's life story has been the basis of actually two feature like films. Mm. There was Man in the Wilderness in 1971 and The Revenant, which came out in 2015. Um, they both portray the survival struggles of Glass, who, in the best historical accounts, crawled and stumbled 200 miles to Fort Kiowa, South Dakota after being abandoned without supplies or weapons by fellow explorers and fur traders during General Ashley's expedition of 1823. Despite the story's popularity, its accuracy has been disputed. Really? Yeah, what a surprise. (laughs) It was first recorded in 1825 in the Portfolio, a Philadelphia literary journal, as a literary piece and later picked up by various newspapers. Although it was originally published anonymously, it was later revealed to be the work of James Hall, who was the brother of the portfolio's editor. Mm. Um, there is no writing from Hugh Glass himself to corroborate the veracity of it. And also, it's likely to have been embellished over the years as a legend regardless. So odds are it's probably not that accurate. But didn't stop people from making movies about it. So so there you go. So that was my quiz on furry things. Terrific. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed it, everybody. Um, yeah, look up Diane Arbus's work. It's very interesting. It's it's a little unsettling, um, weirdly ominous. I don't think it was purposeful on her end, but um, there's some very interesting uh, and very cool images of people who are kind of on the fringes of society in the in the 1950s. Um, so check that out. Uh, so thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you, Lauren. Thank you, everybody else, for listening. And thank you again so much for all of your kind emails and tweets oh, yeah. and messages. It's, it's very nice to hear. It's so kind to hear. And uh, we just love hearing from you guys. So please like, feel free to email us uh, or tweet at us or send us a little message on Facebook. Um, we're always happy to hear from you. And uh, we're always happy to take suggestions on upcoming topics because we've been doing this a long time. And uh, there are more weeks Milty's than not. getting that tired. I, yeah, well, there are more <laughs> weeks than not that I turn to Steve and I go, what should I do for topic this week and he always comes up with something like uh mm, spoons he's like how about uh basic machines i'm just like no not your thing not your thing (laughs) not your thing (laughs) not your thing my thing steve (laughs) so (laughs) oh my god thanks everybody and we will catch you next time goodbye bye